I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Can Be, the second of a two-part series on the leadership who helped guide the Jewish community and the city of Pittsburgh as a whole through Pittsburgh's darkest day. On that day, a lone gunman opened fire on worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, killing 11 people in what would become the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in our nation's history. I'm Jeffrey Myers, and I'm the rabbi of Tree of Life. I'm a victim, I'm a survivor, I'm a mourner. I began services at 945, the shooting started a few minutes after. There were 12 of us in the sanctuary at that time. And this is customary in the Jewish faith, and I've also seen it in other faiths. All the early people come and sit in the back. <laughs> I helped pull out the people that I could from the front. But alas, I had eight people in the back. One fortunately survived. Seven of my congregants were shot dead in my sanctuary. My texts, my emails, my Facebook overflow with love from strangers, people I've never met, people who are not from the United States, but from all around the world, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, all with the same message. We are here from you. My cup overflows with love. That's how you defeat hate. Today we are joined by Brian Schreiber, who for the past two decades has served as Executive Director of the Jewish Community Center of Greater Pittsburgh, and Rabbi Ron Simons, who heads the JCC's Center for Loving Kindness and Civic Engagement. The JCC has been a nonpartisan venue for community meetings about topics including racism, the environment, domestic abuse, immigration, early childhood education, and gun violence. When gun violence hit their community, Brian and Rabbi Ron needed everything they had in them to face the day and the hours that followed. So Brian, thank you for being here. We're going to spend some time on a painful topic, but before we get to that, I do want to talk a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you're doing. So can you talk a little bit about the JCC and why you're interested in the work that it does? JCC has been around for now 124 years. Classic organization built out of the Settlement House movement that really helped provide services, social services and recreational services for immigrants. You can actually see pictures from the turn of the 20th century of people of all ages and walks of life being served by, at that point, the Irene Kaufman Settlement. And that tradition has continued all the way to the present day. We're inspired and powered by Jewish values, but you do not need to be Jewish to participate in our programs and services. So one of the, I think, models of that is that a couple of years ago, you and Rabbi Ron Simon, who has been on this program, began an innovative new program that really was all about building community and modeling a much broader view of what community is called the Center for Loving Kindness. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. We really began the inspiration for the Center for Loving Kindness and Civic Engagement back in 2016. 
we saw a real change in tenor around the political climate, not around the partisanship, because partisanship exists in American politics for as long as there's been in America, but in terms of the way that people engaged with each other and how heightened it was and how intense it was. We took a step back and went back to our values and our roots and took a look about what made the JCC a special place. And a lot of it was about civic engagement, and a lot of it was around really two biblical principles that we really believed needed to guide us in this next iteration of who we were as a JCC and help community. And that is love your neighbor as yourself and not to stand idly by while your neighbor bleeds. And from there, it really became the framework for building something larger, both around uh, help, helping our civic society be a, a different place and also leading by example and building relations far beyond just our internal JCC community, but the community at large. And to think about neighbor not just as geographic term, but moral concept. I absolutely love that idea as a central concept of the Center for Loving Kindness and the work that you're now doing. And just to underscore it, it's that neighbor is a moral concept, not a geographic one. So it's not about living next door to somebody or looking like somebody. It's about caring for somebody. So let's talk about Saturday morning. October 27 comes. You are actually, it's, I, I think, important to note, a member of the Tree of Life congregation. Yes. And so you had a personal stake in this. I think everybody in, in the neighborhood felt stunned and unsure of what to do. But we rarely think about what it's like to be on the front lines and responding. So you had invited people to go to the JCC. Can you describe that first day to us? What was going yeah. on? So my wife dropped me off. Even though she was involved in the congregation, I said, Let's, we'll be in touch, but I have a feeling I'm going to be here for a long time. So I walked in. I believe the Salvation Army or the Red Cross already had food lined up for people. And there were dozens and dozens of close family members waiting for word. I know several of the clergy from the congregations were there. Uh, first responders were there. And we were trying to keep people, I'm not going to use the word light, we wanted to keep people engaged and supported. Probably several dozen of our staff who were not scheduled to work on Saturday came in just to make sure they were available to help people. So I saw an incredible outpouring, both from our staff, from the Federation, from Jewish uh, Family and Community Services, and then other helpers like Salvation Army and Red Cross and others just coming in to be helpful. The leadership of the three congregations, uh, the Federation and Jewish Family and Community Services and the JCC all met in our boardroom and really began planning response, communication response, the talk of a community vigil. There was a spontaneous vigil that happened that Saturday night, but there was a formal vigil that we began planning on that Sunday. And obviously law enforcement and the FBI was coming in, et cetera, et cetera. So we really began, in my mind, community response. And part of that was aided by the fact that so many of us have been working with each other for so many years that we didn't have to get to know each other through the crisis. We already had built-in relationships and built-in partnerships. It, it was certainly a day that I'll never forget in terms of both being there so intently for community and community needs and being so connected to the families that were waiting for news of their family 
And I would say in those very early hours of the event, it was staying with those families all the way through the process of notification. No one was notified. We knew there were a number of casualties. We thought there were 10 or 11 by that point and some injuries, and we were waiting for word for that. Late in the afternoon, they were they told who was in the hospital. There weren't that many people in the hospital. And I think at that point, people really began to realize that their worst fears were realized. The process of being with family members, waiting for that official news, when they already they already knew deep down what they were going to be hearing is something that will stay with me, I'm sure, for as long as I'm living. It's my honor to welcome Naftali Bennett, Minister of Diaspora Affairs for the State of Israel, who hopped on a plane last night. Joyce Feinberg, Rich Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Bernice and Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Youngner, Brothers Cecil and David Rosenthal. Today we stand in the shadow of death, 11 innocent lives brutally cut short. But today I met the people, the leaders of the Jewish community, the leaders of the greater community here in Pittsburgh. Met Rabbi Myers, visited the synagogue, and I did not see death. I saw life. I saw a warm, diverse community of love and unity. I saw Etz Chaim, the tree of life, which will never be uprooted by hate. Unity will defeat division. Love will defeat hatred. Light will defeat darkness. You've said that getting through that day took every ounce of who we are. What did you learn about who you are, who the community is through this? I think at the essence, I think our staff come to work because they care about people, and they care about people's lives, and they care about making a difference. And this was tested in a way that we've never felt before because it, it wasn't just strangers. Many of these victims we knew Many were members of the JCC. Several were related to JCC staff members. So this was a very intimate event to try to be supporting people unconditionally. So I knew this would stretch us to our deepest level of resolve. And I'd have to give our staff and our community an A plus for holding it together and really keeping sight of the most important parts of this, starting with the victims and their families and the members of the congregations, and the congregations themselves, and the clergy, and what's known in the Jewish circles as the Hever Kaddisha, the burial society, that was going to have to do some very, very challenging cleanup of the site to conform with Jewish ritual burial practices. And then the path to resiliency. The JCC always takes pride that we never close. We're open seven days mm-hmm. a week. Even on Jewish holidays now, we're doing community programs around the holidays, so we're almost open 365 days a year. There was a part of me very early on that said we have to open on Sunday, and we were not able to open on Sunday, but we did have to also build a plan to open up Monday morning. We had over 200 children in early childhood that needed care services and 100 and something in in after-school care and people that needed to return to normalcy. And in the wake of a horrific 
I mean, this is a hate crime. Yes. And a hate massacre. How much courage did that take? I don't think we really thought about courage. I think we thought more about doing the right thing. Just felt like it was right. Maybe in retrospect, it was courageous. It didn't feel courageous at the time. I felt like we were built for this. We are a resilient community. We're a strong community. And I guess that was battle-tested in probably the, the darkest hour or one of the darkest hours in Pittsburgh's history and in American Jewish history. And I don't think anybody thought about it in those terms. We just moved into action as we would in any other significant situation where people needed help. My name is Jonathan Perlman, and I grew up in this city. When I was a teenager, Willie Stargell had a charge for us. We are family. I spent a number of years away from the city, going to college, working. But my heart belonged to this city. And I always bragged to people wherever I went that Pittsburgh was the friendliest city on this earth. Eight years ago, I was called to be the rabbi of New Light Congregation, an historic congregation in our city, over 100 years old. And I got to meet the friendliest, what we say in Yiddish, the most Hamish people I have ever worked with in my career as a rabbi. I want to address my fellow members of New Light and let you know what happened yesterday will not break us. It will not ruin us. We will continue to thrive and sing and worship and learn together and continue our historic legacy in this city with the friendliest people that we know. One of the things that has struck me about the Jewish community's response, and yours in particular in the wake of this, is the number of times you've spoken about love. It's extraordinary, actually. So you come out of this incredible act of hate and respond with language about and examples of love. And you've shared some stories about how you saw love manifest in the community's response. Could you share a couple of those now? Sure. I think love started the first night. So this spontaneous vigil popped up. It was some Alderdice students that really felt like something needed to happen. And tonight, residents gathered at the corner of Forbes and Murray Avenues to remember those who were killed. This is high school students who decided to get together. There are no less than a thousand people that have now gathered here. We felt like something had to happen. If we felt like this, then how did the community feel? Having people to talk to and like communicate with is just so helpful for people during this time because you want to do something. We all have so much more in common than we have to differentiate us. Um, and I think nights like tonight remind us of that. Candles illuminated the darkness, music filled the air, and community compassion. We could hear it in the JCC. We couldn't participate in it because our job was to be there with those families until the very, very last family member was notified. 
So I was at the vigil on Forbes and Murray, and it, what was amazing about it, aside from the astounding number of people from the neighborhood and from all around the city who appeared, but it was also astounding because of the students leading it. What is your message to young people? What have you learned from young people through this, and what is your message to young people growing up in a world where this kind of hate crime is increasingly common? Look, we're still living through that. We're still living through that now, and there's still issues going on. And uh, Taylor Alderdice student was killed. An African American, 16 year old, incredibly promising young man was killed. There were rumors of gun violence at Alderdice last week, and I believe well over two thirds of the student body didn't go to school that Friday. But between those two issues, and I think you know how the Tree of Life issues continues to resonate in the neighborhood. Out of 1,500 kids, 1,100 didn't show up for school on Friday. That's a lot of kids. Um, and my kid, who's been pretty res- resilient through all of this, would not leave his classroom, would not go use the bathroom that day. He wow. told me he, wouldn't, he did not want to be on the hallway by himself. And he began developing in his mind, here's how I barricade myself in this classroom. Here's the dresser. And he's like sitting there in school. It's the first time I've heard him really articulate this. This is your son? My son. I, we could take this thing and we could barricade the room this way and here's the escape route and I could do this. And I thought to myself, how are you going to learn anything in, in an algebra class, an algebra two class, if you're worried about your escape route? And that certainly wasn't what we had to go through in high school was thinking about our escape routes. Uh, my son did, my, my sophomore at Alderdice did go. And part of that is to continue this story of resilience and not being, not giving in to fear. You can take out of incredibly painful events and you can build resilience and hope and activism and action and not necessarily wait for the adults to give you permission. And I think there's a lot of beauty in there. I think we really saw it resolutely as a community the next night at the vigil, the number of clergy that participated, a standing room only crowd, people waiting in the rain outside soldiers and sailors. And today with our whole hearts, We stand with you. We will cry with you. We will resist anti-Semitism and all hatred with you. And we will work with you to end violence. We will work together as one. We will defeat hate with love. We will be a city of compassion, welcoming to all people, no matter what your religion or where your family came from on this earth or your status. I think we realized that this wasn't just a Jewish community event, but that this was an event that shook all of Pittsburgh and shook parts of the world. And we just began to see random acts of kindness. Mm. People began leaving candles and flowers at our doorstep, and that continued for another 10 days. Every day there'd be another flower or another card. Maybe they weren't so random. I think they were very intentional and very thoughtful and very authentic. And one of the things I've always loved the most about Pittsburgh is just how real and authentic we are as a community. And you can't put that on. It wasn't perfunctory. It was genuine. We've seen the repetition of this time and again in our society. We look at just a week after the Tree of Life massacre, 12 people were killed in Thousand Oaks, California. We've had ongoing gun violence here, as you just mentioned. How do you process that, and how do you help the families that you're working with process that? 
It's a great question, and it's almost impossible, I think, to process it. I, I think it's unfathomable to both process or accept a world with this level of violence in it and the inability as a society to be able to create a safer environment. It's hard for me to imagine why society's tolerance level for this level of pain is as high as it is. One of the ways that I saw the Jewish community, and again, you in particular, respond that also so impressed me was that you almost immediately said, this isn't just the Jewish community. We were targeted in this case, but this happens all the time with other groups and very often targets the African-American community. What moved you to broaden the circle of your embrace in that moment? I think there's two things. And it was really interesting to watch the community's response to this. Uh, obviously, Jewish history over thousands of years, we, we have been targeted, we have been hated. I was a bit concerned that through this would be folks saying, I told you, the world's out to get us, the world hates us, etc. I haven't seen very much of that. And I think part of it was the reaction outside the Jewish community was so strong and so supportive and so heartfelt on so many different levels that allowed us to put that event in context and understand the very intense, very personal pain that we're feeling as individuals and as a community in the context of other people's pain. Mm. It's not a contest about who has more pain. It's understanding that people go through deep pain and how do we walk through the journey of pain to resilience. And that's gonna be a long-term process. I'm Reverend Dr. John C. Welch, Vice President and Dean of Students of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and chaplain for the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police. I'm a Pittsburgher born and raised. I stand here as a member of the African-American community, a community that has a common global history with our Jewish brothers and sisters, whether it be slavery or the Holocaust, and a common experience in this country and in this city, both of us subjects of distinct marginalization and yet together we are advocates for civil rights and social justice. We are the steel city and still may no longer be rolling off of the platforms as they used to, but the strength of that steel still remains and it is embodied by us. Our goal is to work together to make this city a model city across the nation where everyone feels welcome and can call Pittsburgh home. Our goal in working together is to make sure that Pittsburgh is a place where we can triumph over terrorism and tragedy, and where we can be the city of bridges that brings together what others want to divide. God bless Pittsburgh. God bless the Jewish community. Some people in Pittsburgh looked at the reaction to the Tree of Life tragedy and said it's appropriate but it's disproportionate to what happens when there are shootings in the African-American community. And in Pittsburgh's unique story, people I used as a point of contrast how the community did or didn't respond after the shooting of Antoine Rose, a young African-American uh, high school student who was shot in a traffic stop. 
I think you addressed it head on, and I'd, I'd just be curious for you to talk a little bit about how you looked at that. I look, I think it's highly nuanced. Uh, again, I don't think we want to compare pain. I think you have to be in relationships to people, and you have to talk about what may not always be comfortable. I think they're very different events. I think from a tree of life perspective, the group that's given us greatest strength over time has been the experience of the African-American church or predominantly African-American church in Charleston Mm -hmm. um, that went through that shooting three years ago and came to at least one of the funerals to provide support and comfort. So I think there was something very unique about people being killed for who they were in a place of worship. Right. You could potentially also look at those that were killed in the Pulse nightclub, which was targeted because it was predominantly serving the LGBTQI community. I never want to minimize reactions to to anybody's death. I think we just have to do it within the context of this work where we can draw strength from. I think all that being said, if we're trying to look at this in the long view, is not to ignore the death of anybody in our community and to understand that and to provide comfort for people and to maybe move it away from the immediate politicalization of that tragedy, purely being there for people in need, in grief, in comfort, and build a relationship. Right. It, it seems after every incident like this, there are two responses, and one is to embrace and rush in and want to help and express support. I'm still blown away by Pittsburgh's ability to respond in that way after Tree of Life. But the other response is to do exactly what you, I think, beautifully phrased a moment ago as minimizing someone else's pain. And we see this all the time. We see this actually in the political culture. We see this in a lot of civic dialogue where people try to ascribe a reason or a motivation to a particular incident or to make it seem like it's only confined to one group. Why do we need to stop doing that? I don't think we've given that one a tremendous amount of thought yet. I think what you have to try to do is lead by example, to provide a safe place to begin those conversations, to utilize clergy, to perhaps tone it down and bring a broader context to it. And it's why we actually started a lot of our Center for Loving Kindness work within clergy, because that's where relationships and role modeling can be made, and then begin to move it person by person populist by populace, and again, using that mantra of neighbor as moral concept. And if we can break down some barriers and build individual relationships, I think that's how you can begin to build a better culture. And I think Pittsburgh's large enough to have the resources to get and do that work and just small enough to maybe have some lasting impact and set a model for who we can be for the rest of the country. What we didn't understand at the beginning but is much clearer to me now is this was an event that immediately got national and international attention. But it was and remains an incredibly personal and intense neighborhood event. So long after the TV cameras are gone, this is an event that's going to live within Pittsburgh for months and years to come and within our neighborhood, within our community, within our congregation, and within the JCC. We, we have to think about it about healing in the short term and also in the long term. How do we not let it define us? I think to some degree it will define us. It depends how you allow it to define you. If it defines you in a way to be bitter and to be afraid, 
and to be a defeatist, then I think it's defined you in a way that, that makes it very difficult to move forward. If it defies you to acknowledge it, to understand root causes of hate, to understand how you can build deeper resilience in a community, how you can build bridges that you never had before, and how you can actually get closer to other people's narratives, then I think you have begun a path of moving forward through tragedy. I'm trying to resist the impulse to have you wrap up this whole experience in a neat little bow. I don't want you to do that. But often we learn things about ourselves and about our community as a result of a moment like this. And I'm curious what you learned about the Jewish community in Pittsburgh and about Pittsburgh, about community. You learn a lot about your own capacity. You learn that you're far stronger and that you can deal with a lot more more than you thought you could. And so many other people could. It's not just a, a Brian Schreiber story, but so many people I just saw reach at a different level than they had before, out of motivation, out of desire to help. We saw the best in people. 99% of the people, I saw the best of what people had to give. And that gives me the motivation to take what I can in myself and in the institution that I lead and to try to make sure that our institution is at its best for this community's healing and resilience. And it's, it's with us every day. Every time I drive by the synagogue, and I do drive by often, there's always fresh flowers. There's always somebody there. People care. And you hear so many negative things out there. Most people are really good. They have really good souls. They have to just be given a reason and a motivation to express that. Brian, the name of our podcast is We Can Be. Uh, What do you believe that your neighborhood, which by the way is my neighborhood, so our neighborhood, country and world can be? We can be a model for the future. We can be a model of coexistence. We can be a model of pluralism. We can be a model for standing up to hate. We can be a model for social justice and trying to make the world just a little better than it was yesterday. Brian, thank you so much. You're welcome, Grant. Thank you. The more that we see ourselves as a part of a larger collective while still celebrating our diversity, the better off we're going to be. Rabbi Ron Simons of the JCC has been an ardent believer that the concept of neighbor is a moral concept, not a geographical one. That belief was never needed more than that day at Tree of Life Synagogue. Martin Luther King said, doesn't make a difference what boat you came over on, we're all on the same boat now. The slogan that eventually came out of October 27th is Pittsburgh stronger than hate. It's not Jewish Pittsburgh stronger than hate. It's an attack on all of us. Mm. So I think we all see ourselves on that same boat. And the only way that we are going to conquer, whether it's anti-Semitism or any other anti that you can imagine, is by working in partnership with people who understand that it is a larger hatred and that we have to work together in order to make the difference. Unfortunately, at this point in America's modern history, there are a whole bunch of cities that have had to deal with mass shootings out of the blue, and nobody's ever ready. But to the extent that a community can think about what it needs to have in place for a moment when tragedy comes, 
What advice would you be giving every community in America to be doing right now? What should we be doing right now to be ready for disaster when it strikes? So to a certain extent, we're very fortunate here in Pittsburgh. Being a part of the Jewish community, thanks to the leadership of the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh, we've been trying to figure out how do we respond to moments of this sort for a few years now. Last spring, there was a community event at the JCC where there was a pretend shooter. And 150 people came out to be volunteers to play different roles so that the police and the FBI could hone their skills. Of course, what we've learned from the police came true if you can just get those three to five minutes after the event, you have more likelihood of having more people to survive. Mm. So to learn the skills and to set yourself up so that you can have those three to five minutes mm. so that the authorities can do what they need to do in order to save more people. I do want to come back to the timeline of the people who were lost on October 27th yeah. and talk a little bit about their burials, because right. the week after the vigil at Soldiers and Sailors was a week of burying the dead. What happens in that process? What, what was that like to go through a week of burials, and what was involved? When it came time to have Jerry Rabinowitz's funeral, the family asked if they could do it at the JCC because they needed more space. And so we, of course, said yes. Right. So I helped to arrange all the logistics and to make sure that everything was in the right place. And how do we go from a hall that seats 400 to a hallway that seats 200, then into a gymnasium that seats another 400 in order to make sure that everyone could be a part of it and that we had everything in order? I, I knew Jerry personally. And I felt like I was doing an act of kindness for him, which is what a funeral is, what a burial is. It's the last act of kindness that you could perform for someone. What was fascinating for me, even within the Jewish community, is that as we finished the funeral and Jerry's coffin came out and people began to line up in the cars for the procession, there was a, a group of Orthodox Jews that were standing behind the hearse. And they said to me, did you make arrangements with the police for us to walk? <laughs> I said, what? They said, well, we're going to walk behind the hearse. Did you tell the police? I said, no, but I will. So I went and I told the police, and they said, sure. And I thought that my presence with Jerry was going to be done there because I would have to go on to whatever the next urgent need was. But as I saw them gathering to walk, I said, why aren't I going? And so I joined them. Reform rabbi, progressive, pluralistic, with a whole bunch of Orthodox Jews. And as we were walking behind the hearse, obviously traffic stopped. But not only vehicle traffic, people on the streets stopped, mm. and saluted, and cried. And I, I felt like that was a moment of empowerment. It was a community funeral, not just for Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz, but for the goodness. It was a community funeral in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and everyone got it. I do have some other experiences privately, 
So during the course of the aftermath of October 27th, there's been a lot of press time on how do Jews perform the rituals to get ready for burial. A part of that process is called the Hevra Kedisha, the burial society. What we do is we make sure that the cleansing of the body is done in a very respectful manner. After the body is, is washed, we then purify the body with water, almost like a, a baptism. Baptism, of course, has its origins back in the Bible before the time of Jesus. It was called a mikvah, right? a, a full-body immersion, which is still used by traditional Jews today. And then we dress the deceased in white shrouds, very simple garments, and place him, in my case I only deal with males, into the coffin. And all of this is accompanied by words of prayer and words of scripture and words of poetry. So I was getting ready to do that with a team. I had arrived late to the funeral home because of other things I needed to be doing. And I know that they had already begun with two gentlemen, and there was a third to come. And I was in the back of the funeral home, getting ready, changing my clothes, and all of a sudden, a knock on the outside door. And I said, who is it? And she said, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. That's what the, the voice, voice said. That's what the voice said. Now, it's not my funeral home, right? So I went and I got a funeral director, and I said, someone's knocking. We probably should open up the door. So the funeral director had to move the folding chair out from underneath its wedged position in the door. That was the security for the door? Yeah. Wow. And then open up the door, and we saw this small, frail woman who was waving $1,000 and said, this is for the married couple. And the funeral director said, what's your name? She said, no names. And this frail little woman just disappeared into the night. Funeral director closed the door, put the chair back in, and we looked at each other, and we just sobbed in each other's arms for five minutes. Mm. Because after great darkness, there's great light. There's such goodness out there. And I went from that moment into the rituals. It's so hard to imagine how it is that hatred of the sort still exists in our world. That October 27th serves as a catalyst to remind us of what we should be and how we should do it. October 27th has to bring out our humanity and our empathy and our sympathy. That dream of having a moment when we don't have to deal with this, it's the world yet to be. And we have to do our best to try to get to that place. We can't wait for it just to happen. We have to be activists to make it happen. A couple of nights after the shooting, I made a pilgrimage to visit the makeshift memorial that had sprung up outside the Tree of Life synagogue as members of the community left flowers and signs and stones and remembrances to honor the fallen. I was struck as I stood among the crowd by a sign shaped like a dove on which somebody had written the words, Strangers Together. 
I thought that was such a beautiful sentiment to capture how we are all in this world, strangers. Later, as I was looking at photos I had taken of the memorial, I realized that I'd actually misread the sign. The sign said, stronger together. The convergence of these two thoughts beautifully captures what had happened in Pittsburgh in the wake of one of our darkest experiences as a community. We come into this world as strangers. We feel separate and apart. But what makes us a community, what helps us prosper, is the learning, the slow discovery that we are truly stronger together, and in that, no longer strangers. 